Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I am joined by a very old friend. We have known each other for honestly more than a decade now and I can't believe it's been that long. Um, Dr. Malin Lilly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the word old is, is kind of scary because it implies that we are also getting old. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, over 10 years. Um, that's yeah, that's wild. Yeah, well, I mean, we met in our early 20s when we both interned at Dolphins Plus in Key Largo, Florida, which was obviously the start of both of our careers. Um, you you did the animal care internship um, with me, but you're now a researcher. So um, where did where did you change your mind? Were you like, yes, I want to do training. And then we're like, oh, I actually fallen in love with research. Great question. Great question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. Everyone talks about where, where did their love of marine mammals come from? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and I know you've mentioned to some other guests, this whole like Lisa Frank era in the nineties and things. I definitely had that stuff, but it started like even before then. And my family and I can't quite pinpoint what it was, but I'm one of those odd children who is just like marine mammals. I want to know more about them. Mm. That's all I've ever said my entire life. Right. Um, we found a clue in my baby book, um, when I was helping my mom move some stuff, um, that my first like little stuffed animal was a dolphin. I don't know, but I mean, like that's the first gift that anyone gave me ever, I guess. Um, but like, even when I was eight, I had a, a folder of like facts and information. Right. And we'd watch the like IMAX documentaries of like dolphin researchers and things. So I always had like marine mammals in my brain, mm -hmm. but obviously I didn't know the different career options, working with them directly yeah. and care like, um, uh, you've done, uh, the research side, honestly, I kind of want to do it all. Um, and I, I'm not, you know, lying. To, I would say like, even today, I still want to do it all. Um, but that that's a, a challenging thing to do, right? You have to find like, where, where do you fit into this picture? So um, when we did the internship together, I was still interested in all of it. Um, and I had research experience um, in different capacities uh, previously, but I hadn't had that hands-on experience with marine mammals. And um, I wanted to gain that because really you can learn so much by just spending time with the animals, right? Um, things that you don't expect, right? You don't necessarily go out looking for it, but after watching animals for a while, you're like, what, what is that about? What are they doing there? Right. Um, and so I absolutely loved our internship. I walked away from it. Like if anything, like maybe even wanting to be hands-on like trainer caretaker even more. Mm -hmm. Um, but the whole time, like we would sit on the doc sessions, we did the B point sessions, right. Um, through it all, I was, still asking questions about like their cognition and their behavior. Mm. Um, I want to know more about what they're thinking and how they're doing this. Right. Um, I love talking to guests, those guest briefings that we had to do, um, like love telling people about dolphins. Um, and I always have been like a teacher in some capacity, whether it's like teaching children dance, um, tutoring or things like that. So I think when I was kind of like 
looking at all the options. The research side um, kind of comes with uh, usually like a university sort of position, right? Where you can still work with students. You can still teach and tell people about dolphins. <laughs> you can do uh, like the research aspect of it. And then it does in some instances provide opportunities to go um, observe the animals, um, you know, do different studies with the animals. So um, I don't know. I, I jokingly tell the trainers that I see uh, on a more regular basis that, you know, some days I'll be sitting in my office and look outside at the weather and go, I wish I was a trainer today. Um, and then <laughs> other days when it's horrible or it's snowing in Texas for whatever reason, mm. um, I will be thankful that I have my office where I can sit in and work on some research papers. Um, but yeah, I think like research, there's so many questions we still have. Like we know a lot more about dolphins than we did before or other marine mammals. Like there's still so many questions out there. Yeah. Um, and it's cool to like be able to make some small advances on some of those things. It's really interesting to hear that like your desire for working with marine mammals was really like your passion and drive to know more about them, like what, the, why they did the things that they did. Mm -hmm. um you know for me it really was just like I wanted to be close to them like I was just fat I just felt drawn to them it wasn't necessarily like what are they thinking it was oh my gosh I want to be around them like they're just such incredible animals um so it's really interesting finding out you know what drives each person to seek out a different type of job and when we were at Dolphins Plus on our internship we were all the whole group of us we were all doing our undergrad studies mm -hmm. um so when you left that internship and you finished your undergrad how did you decide what you were going to do next? Oh, geez. Yeah, this is a, hmm, trying to like go back to those days. I, I feel like it, you Come know, on, we're not, we're not that old. <laughs> we're yeah. not, it wasn't that long. Um, well, right. But, but, you know, when you have all these like options and you're processing them and then you're very busy, right? Like I know you took off with, you know, different positions and jobs right away and, um, I was doing school, which is constant. So kind of have to take a step back and be like, what was I thinking at that time? Um, so, right. So we left after the summer. Um, obviously I went back to school. Um, thankfully my professors, and we'll just shout out to all my teachers and professors who have ever been tolerant or lenient with me. <laughs> Anytime we had like a class, a paper or project or something, if possible, um, I would try to explore some question related to marine mammals with that assignment. Um, obviously, it's not always possible. Um, but if it's a it's a paper on uh, language development or, or something like that, I would say, OK, well, what do we know about dolphin communication? <laughs> so I was always bringing it back to that. Right. Um, but uh, the following summer, I actually did an internship experience in Australia in Adelaide, um, and it was a wild dolphin uh, survey, right? So taking photo IDs, um, GPS coordinates, biopsy samples, long days on the boat um, in Australia, but it was their winter. So it was freezing cold out on the boat every day. Um, but it was still, it was really cool. And I did want to explore that side to the wild research um, because, uh, you know, sometimes we kind of get closed in our little like, oh, this is what I do. And we don't know what's out there. And so I really wanted to see, you know, this wild research, how are they doing this? What questions can they answer? And it was really cool because we got to look at the Australian bottlenose dolphins, which are a bit different. Um, and there's so many valuable questions like what habitat they're using. Um, there's a port uh, where we were looking in Adelaide. So it was really important to look at the shipping routes and boat traffic and things. 
but I still found myself like, what are they doing down there? Right. So like a, a mother and a calf swam very close to our boat one day. And I was, you know, from all the time we had at Dolphins Plus with the calves that were at Dolphins Plus and we could, well, actually we had to go do ethograms of them every day as part of our, mm-hmm. our, our position. And we weren't recording any of their behavior uh, in this wild dolphin survey. It was dorsals, IDs, biopsies. I'm like, what are they doing down there? I want to know what's going on, right? Um, and that's that helped me realize as well. Um, I really respect and value the wild research. And, and in some, I think in some situations, in some populations, in some habitats, you can learn more about cognition and behavior. Um, but it's so important to also be able to study the cognition and behavior in a more managed care setting as well. So know what's going on in a bit more detail. Um, and so that kind of, I think, shaped my path. Um, and then I actually went back to Dolphins Plus um, to work on a research project that was like my senior thesis that I had to do for university. Um, and while I was there, um, uh, Dr. Stan Kuchai was visiting, doing some of his research as well. Um, and so he and I connected there. Um, and I think, I think sometimes we imagine that there's like these big pivotal moments in our lives. And I think each of those is pivotal, but it's really the little things, like it all adds up, right? Like one little experience at a time kind of just like shapes your next. Yeah. So did Stan give you any advice when you were down there? Um, I'm trying to like, again, think back to that time. I'm I'm sure he gave me lots of advice. Um, I think I was a bit, uh, starstruck at the moment. Right. Um, because if you grow up, you know, reading research articles and wanting to know more about, um, marine mammals and then suddenly there are these people who who do those things I suppose it's like wanting to grow up being mm-hmm. uh, a film or movie star or something like that and then you meet one right <laughs> so um we really honestly he was so down to earth we just sat down and had a conversation at one of those picnic tables in the briefing area mm-hmm. there and talked about you know what questions I had about the dolphins and um what I saw myself doing for graduate school and research and things like that um, and really, it was just more of a conversation. Um, and so um, I think he he gave me homework, right, in terms of like, well, go think about these things and, um, you know, stay in touch and things like that. So um, obviously, I did and ultimately ended up uh, joining his research lab that following year. So um, that's so uh, interesting. It's so funny to me that I feel like both of us had like one of those big moments at plus, like you got mm-hmm. to talk to Stan and I got well, I don't want to say I cornered him in the fish kitchen, but I heard that Ted Turner was visiting when we were doing our internship together. And I was like, oh my God, a god of killer rail training. I have to go and talk to him. And um, he gave me maybe the best advice that anyone could have given me. Like I was still so caught up in how much I loved killer rails. I was like, my God, I love them so much. I just want to work with them. And he was so brutal. Like he was so harsh with me he was like you'll never work with killer rails with that attitude like you need to get like all of that airy fairy nonsense out of your head why do you want to work with them like what is the professional reason and then he topped it all off with telling me I would never work at SeaWorld because I was European and I should focus on Laura Parker Marine Land and I was crushed like when I tell you I was so crushed because I like I was like I'd want to work at SeaWorld Orlando but when I took that advice back and really kind of unpacked it I was like okay 
if he's telling me this is for a reason, like he knows this industry, if this is going to be my way in, this is where I need to put my focus. And I did. Mm -hmm. And I worked at both of them. And look at you. You ended up working at his lab. Yeah. All these little, little like chance encounters, right? Mm -hmm. Like we didn't know either, uh, either of them would, um, we didn't go there planning to have those conversations. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I share with students is you never know who you're going to meet and then like what opportunities lead to other opportunities. So for example, talking to people who could give us advice, but also I tell them the people you're in internships or working with, those are your future colleagues, right? Like I, here we are connecting 10 years later um, based on one place we were together, you know, just by chance sort of. So, and I mean, I've spoken to your students multiple times, you know, via zoom and even in person when I visited Texas. So I mean, and I've interviewed multiple people from our intern group on this mm-hmm. podcast. Like we had Maddie on the podcast as well. And, you know, like all of us have kind of gone off on different paths. But I think a lot of people or aspiring trainers look at an internship, or I certainly did, of like, it's to check these boxes and get this done. But you can end up getting so much more out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I even know like even um, just those little experiences when you came and spoke to my students. Um, I think I shared this with you um, in, in messaging at, at some point. Um, there was someone there who followed you on Instagram and hadn't been to our university. Um, so they came to our university to watch you speak and then they learned yes. more about the research yeah. and it just, it's crazy. And then now they've gotten involved and they're doing their degree now and it's, isn't yeah. she isn't she helping Heather isn't she a research yeah, assistant for Heather now yeah yeah so incredible. yeah incredible I know so you joined um Stan Kuchai's research lab and you were like okay animal cognition I want to figure out what's going on with them mm-hmm. what did you find out did you get some of your questions answered Oh, questions are never answered. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing that um, I, I've learned right over however many years uh, through the uh, being, you know, an undergraduate student, master's student, PhD student, uh, life being a professor now um, that you can work towards, you know, collecting some data and building some evidence, but that just leads to uh, more questions, mm-hmm. right? find one thing out like oh well how does this you know how are they doing it or why are they doing it or where how's it how's it happening right so I mean I've worked on a number of projects where we have um learned things which is fascinating um but then there's just more and more questions so in that way no I don't ever feel like I've completely accomplished anything uh which I think is a double-edged sword right like you want to feel accomplished um but then also you know if you feel like there's nothing left to ask then that's probably not science. So yeah. <laughs> Very true. That's fair. That's fair. So when was the moment that you really felt like, oh, I'm a researcher now? Like I'm doing this like for myself. Like was it when you first saw your name on a published paper? Was it when you first mm-hmm. had like a breakthrough when you were observing animals? Great question. I don't I don't know if there is like a, a defined moment, which is sorry, not not a good answer. Um, I think there's little moments along the way, right? Um, so uh, maybe you know, while I'm doing my master's research, I was collecting some data, uh, and 
that was a project that I had been the primary person on designing, right? And so when I'm there uh, recording what the dolphins are doing, I that was like a sense of like independence. I'm doing this project. I have ownership over this, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's also a um, sort of a accomplishment, uh, I guess, milestone, if you will, to do presentations at conferences because yeah. when you are presenting at a conference, even if it's not a research conference, um, but people are listening to you for a reason, right? Because you have something to tell them about these animals or whatever it is. Um, so that's also this moment of, wow, people are listening to me because I'm telling them about this project that I did um, and these cool results that we have. Um, so there's that. Uh, I don't know what else. I'm trying to think of like other, uh, other moments. Um, Maybe when, when you get to, when somebody asks a question about, oh, what do we know about the animals doing this? And you can say, well, I've actually looked at that myself yeah. you know, on that firsthand experience. So that's pretty cool. Um, but overall, I would say, you know, imposter syndrome is very real. And so even if you have these accomplishments um, and have wonderful mentors, shout out to all the people who have mentored me, um, uh, Dr. Deirdre Yader and Dr. Heather Hill and numerous others, right? Um you still look at these people who have done so many more amazing things. Um, and so uh, they're still the experts, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I feel um, you with that one. Yeah. Like when I started social media and stuff and I was like, no one's gonna listen to me. Like, like why you've got all of these incredible, you've got like Ken Ramirez, you've got Mark Simmons, you've got all these incredible people who like speak, at, like why, why would they listen to me? Yeah. Like they're not going to. And then yeah. it was Mark Simmons who, actually was like Hazel shut up like like he, when I started like working with him and talking to him and he was he gave me such incredible advice and now every time that those thoughts sneak in I have his voice in my mind just being like no don't don't think like that you have something right, we don't have to know well. every yeah we don't have to know everything to know something mm -hmm. right um yeah, exactly yeah. um and you're what tell us now what the focus of your research is right now because it's a very interesting subject Yes. Well, I have a few things going on because as usual, I, I feel the need to, I need to like replicate myself a few times so I can be in multiple areas, right? You like that's, to overextend yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the life of a professor though, right? The research, <laughs> the teaching, the service and all these other things. Um, but I think uh, some of our, I will say, um, attention getting snazzy research is looking at the sexual behavior of uh, belugas specifically, um, but uh, looking across all cetaceans as well. Um, so we have uh, with in collaboration with Dr. Heather Hill um, and Jackson Ham, who's a, a graduate student. We have spent the last little while have some papers and some book chapters um, on like sex and cetaceans. So there's actually a book called Sex and Cetaceans. It's going to be published here at the end of September, um, and it's like it says, literally all about sex in cetaceans, um, which I find is so fun to talk about because people are uncomfortable talking about sex in general. Um, and so then you can just start talking about random facts <laughs> about belugas, right? Um, and yeah, it's- I mean, all I'm going to say is that once you've held a killer whale's penis in your hands, you don't get bashful about talking about cetacean well, sex. Right, right. So I love having conversations like about these topics with other people because- um, 
uh, I don't know, I'm already awkward, so I might as well lean into it, right? <laughs> well, you know me, I don't, I don't get embarrassed easily, so let's yeah, go for exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Pretend so, no one's going to be listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exciting, exciting stuff there. And then I also write, so I, um, one of the courses I teach is human sexuality. Um, and so when I teach that during specific semesters, it's focused on humans, of course, but we can bring in animal examples. And it's fun to see the, the parallels between species, how species are different, but then also how talking about animals' sexuality influences the student's understanding of like the human side of things. So, oh, can you yeah. elaborate on that? That's really interesting. Um, uh, right. So, for those listeners who don't know, um, cetaceans have sex just like other animals, um, but uh odontocetes at least the whales and dolphins species that we know the most about have sex a lot um and in all sorts of combinations so many of your listeners who are on the animal side know this if you're not on the animal side this might be breaking news um, but a lot of the sex is same sex pairings um so two females or two males um the most typical combination we see is two males um so males having sex with other males and that is mind-blowing to many students who have maybe been told that in nature only males and females are having sex um, and that there aren't these same-sex pairings um, in, in other species, right? Um, so we'll talk about there's some fish that will change their sex over their lifetime. They'll go from male to female or female to male. And then um, with the, the belugas or dolphins, right, the males spend a lot of time having sex with each other um, and in all sorts of creative ways um, or the younger animals with the older animals. And um, let me tell so, you, blowholes get involved. Yes, yes. Um, and so <laughs> a lot of this, though, hasn't actually been documented in the research literature, right? So there's a few uh, few anecdotes here and there, um, but really it's something that's kind of been ignored. I'm not sure because people felt uncomfortable writing about it or it wasn't very, uh, it wasn't about their cognition. Or, I don't know. I don't know why it um, was sort of ignored, but yeah, um, there's a lot we still don't know about cetacean sex, right? They clearly have offspring, um, but what is the process, right? What makes a sexy adult male beluga? We still don't know, right? What I mean, even as a trainer, like you can make inferences, but yeah, trying right. to determine like why some why they, like the males will always have sex with each other. Like we used right. to call it um our code word around the pool would be Star Wars. Like mm -hmm. they're they're all getting their lightsabers out. So if like just before a show or like something was happening, be like, oh, Star Wars and like pool A. <laughs> so everyone's yeah. like, oh, okay, they're all having sex. So we probably probably won't have a show. Great. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Good yeah. to because so, it's so reinforcing. So some people ask, well, like, why are why are they doing this, right? Um, what the males having sex with other males, like, well, what, what is the point, right? Um, because mm. everyone wants to know, like, what is the point of this behavior, right? What is its function? What is the ultimate goal of this behavior? Um, we can't always ask the ultimate goal, right? Because I can't just ask the belugas that I see, you know, tell me what's happening in your head. Um, but we can make some inferences, right? Um, one, it 
seems to be part of a bonding process. We can see in other primate species as well that sex is used for like tension reduction or forming bonds. Um, in some species, it could be used potentially as like a dominance um, function, although that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case with most cetaceans we've seen because it seems to be pretty reciprocal back and forth um, as opposed to like one-sided. It could be for practice. Uh, I think that uh, sex in the 3D aquatic environment is probably a pretty tricky thing to actually accomplish uh, for reproduction. Um, and so maybe practice uh, is helping them hone those those skills that they need, um, maybe appear sexier as adults. That's the other thing too, right? Some species, it might be more male choice. Some species, it might be female choice. Some species, it could be both. There's a lot we don't know um, happening there, but especially with the species who are endangered or have low population numbers, these would be good things to know. Um, uh, for example, if all of the very large males in a specific um, group or population were hunted um, or you know died of boat strikes or whatever might happen to them, um, are those the sexiest males, right? Uh, is that a problem for the population? we don't know a lot of this so um it's so interesting yeah. like also like the psychology behind it as well like what are the animals thinking like what's their motivation to do it and you know I think pretty much anyone can understand okay they have hormones so like you know if they they feel a little bit sexy they're gonna like go in search of a partner um obviously from a training standpoint you know most of our animals are trained on things like artificial insemination um so that means that the animals are trained to present their penis and that can then be manipulated to get a sample just in a similar way we would get a fecal sample you know it's all very controlled my supervisor um and I don't know if you've studied this, spoke to me about the difference between killer whales and dolphins in that dolphins it's very physical it seems to be obviously it's not really been researched but with killer whales it's very mental i.e if killer whales are not in the mood you mm. will not get a semen sample mm. so anytime we wanted to and we didn't do it very often because like we weren't planning to do artificial insemination um, but it was always just helpful to keep the behavior like in inuk's mind in case we ever needed it in the future um we would have to wait until we saw sexual behavior between the males and then we would have to gate Inuk into a pool with just one male, <laughs> like almost like you do with like stallions. Like you have like a little, like usually like a small little pony who's like, what do, what do you call them? like a teaser pony or something like that? Yeah, because maybe there's some competition aspect to it potentially, right? Um, yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, there are some theories out there that, you know, sometimes that sexual behavior is contagious. So if one animal is doing it, the other animals will potentially start to do it as well. Um, they might also be releasing some hormones, right? So we know from some more recent research that uh, Dr. Jason Brooks research that the animals can recognize each other based on urine. Um, and so uh, we need a lot more research on these things, <laughs> which I know people are, are working on, hopefully. Um, but, you know, if they're sensing identity from urine, they're probably also sensing hormones and other things going on from that urine, just like other animals are. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe uh, when one animal starts feeling it, the others are too. Um, and then maybe there's just this... Um, that that competition is sort of necessary to initiate right the drive um to to um be in the mood i guess but yeah um a lot we don't know um that hopefully 
hopefully we'll be able to keep answering for sure. But it's so interesting to me as well, like on multiple different fronts, because, you know, you have a lot of people saying like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, force them to breed. Obviously, we know that unless it's artificial insemination, which is obviously another kind of question mark over there, um, Mm -hmm. like natural reproduction, you know, these are two incredibly intelligent mammals who are having sex arguably for pleasure, but do they know that it results in offspring? Are they aware of that? Do they choose that? Like if they can choose to have sex with one another for pleasure, can they also choose to have sex with one another because they want offspring? Like, are they intelligent? And I would argue yes. Like, especially if that animal has seen reproduction, pregnancy, birth, calf, you know, you could argue that they're intelligent enough to watch that whole process happen in their home and go, oh yeah, I know what I'm kind of quote unquote getting into. Mm. Possibly. I mean, these are, those are big questions. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Now, obviously like for a beluga, if the gestation is 14 months, for example, there's a pretty big delay if they're watching that, you know, from the actual copulation to, to when a new uh, calf is born. Um, So you know, we know they have good memories, but uh, you know, are they connecting those two things? I don't but, know. I mean, they also have like, echolocation, so like they can see fetus, so they know what's going on that time. Yeah. So obviously, as a scientist, I don't want to make big inferences until we have evidence because yeah. you know that's best practice, right? But if we have to um, uh, speculate, I think there's a lot going on there. So, for example, um, recently we've seen a lot of behaviors. Um, Normally it's the males engaging and the males do their thing and and, and we know this, um, but the adult females interacting with younger males um, and initiating some of these behaviors when they do have the option to go with an adult male um, and the adult male is available, but initiating these sexual behaviors and interactions with younger males. Now I know this happens more in bottlenose dolphins, but in the belugas, that's not super common. The adult females aren't as overtly sexy in the, in the belugas. Um, and so are, are these practice opportunities for the youngsters? Um, because right what what is what would be the adult female's goal in this situation and again well it's not it can't be reproduction because it happens with males that are not sexually mature yet correct correct and so um is it uh, we don't have um really many examples of teaching um, and there's a lot of qualifications on what officially counts as teaching, right? Um, but perhaps demonstration or shaping behavior, right? Um, so we know just, you know, operant conditioning, if a behavior um, receives something positive after, right, it's more likely to continue, uh, maybe a, a pleasant experience, a negative experience might decrease that behavior, right? Um, so in many instances, maybe there's this situation where it's a positive reinforcement or maybe even just a positive punishment. Now, punishment being the adult female might make an agonistic, aggressive sound or something like that, right? Um, Belugas are pretty flighty, so they don't tend to engage in as much um, physical aggression mm-hmm. as as other animals, right? Um, but yeah, I, it's so cool. Um, and there's so much more to to know. So it is really interesting. <laughs> and you know, this like this type of research would be nigh on impossible in the mm-hmm. wild. You know, yeah. studying animals that live below the surface and reproduce below the surface, like getting access to even see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um 
opportunities than on the ground. Well, um, and that's one of the amazing things is that for all the time, um, belugas and dolphins have been in human care, right? When we were working on these book chapters to compile all of the anecdotes, what have you seen, um, from trainers and caretakers and things like this, uh, the animals will act sexy for seasonal periods, right? So the, the male dolphins might not want to pay attention to trainers. So they're not interested in things like that, but the actual, what is the female doing to attract the male? What is the male doing? Mm -hmm. Um, we had folks be able to provide, you know, some really interesting little tidbits, um, like the dolphins will, uh, float motionless, log at the surface, then they'll like sink to the bottom. They'll appear like they're in a trance. Sometimes they do a little spasm. Um, so we have a handful of examples, um, but really it's not a lot of observations. Even with the belugas, there's only a handful of times people have seen them actually male, female reproduce to make an offspring, right? So we just have so many question marks. But one of the things we've seen recently, to your point about being hard to observe, is the adult female, actually, the, the male was doing like a sexual display, but he was doing it far away. He didn't approach the female. Um, the female swam over H to Human the men listen. Listen, oh, listen to that sentence. <laughs> oh. <laughs> maybe maybe some uh, interesting um, uh, techniques here. Learn from the belugas. <laughs> display from a distance. So the yes. adult male did a display from a distance. The adult female swam over to him and went next to him. But they were doing Consensual. this. Yeah. Uh, at the bottom, like 20 feet below the surface. Right. And so the sociosexual, that the younger animals or the, the non-reproductive behavior, we call that sociosexual, um, often happens at the surface. It could happen really anywhere, but there's a lot of surface activity, mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas this was really far below the surface. So I think that's another reason why it's so valuable to have these yeah. opportunities is because we wouldn't have seen that otherwise. Now the question always remains, right? In a human care setting, are animals in the wild doing this the same way? Um, are, are Is it just this population? Maybe because, for example, in belugas, there's different populations of belugas around the Arctic. Perhaps each of them does it differently. We don't know. Um, but this is a starting point and we know more now than we did before, right? Especially with belugas who are so hard to study because of the, obviously where they live in the Arctic yeah. and the conditions and, and things. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I think that's cool um, and potentially indicates some female choice in the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the examples in bottlenose dolphins we have, sometimes there does appear to be female choice, but sometimes it's males hurting and uh, mm -hmm. coercing potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, different, different species are different and yeah. that's okay. It's all so interesting. And honestly, I can't wait until you publish something like I'll get my hands on that book for sure, just for the little anecdotes and the stories, but, um, I can't wait till you publish something about it so we can, we can learn a little bit more, but Malin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit and chat about all of this, about your journey and what you're studying at the moment. Um, I'm sure my listeners have, uh, have learned something today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, if anyone wants to reach out, um, I already have, we already, we, my collaborators and I already have some published articles on this. Um, and then the book chapters should be open access, um, uh, the digital copies anyways. So if anyone wants to reach out, please do. And I'm always happy, obviously, to talk about whales, dolphins, science, sharing things. So um, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. You're more than welcome. It was so nice to chat to you again. You too. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will catch you all next week.